So 1 Samuel chapter 17, this is a one-point sermon, but that doesn't mean it's going to be short, so don't be getting too excited. I was in here on Friday night, as Nigel mentioned earlier, we, we did uh, some extra prayer there just Friday night and, and through into Saturday. And when we do 24 hours of prayer like that, we're not that fussy about having every slot filled. It's not as if, you know, when the chain breaks, it all falls apart or anything like that. It's just an extra drive and an extra push in prayer. But it was really powerful. And we'll probably, possibly starting from next next weekend, we might run at 21 days of prayer and optional fasting. Again, just extra, maybe just a few extra prayer meetings, just just trying to get people into the prayer room, the keys are there, to seek God on behalf of the town and the church and the nation. Just an additional drive as we hit a new season, just to really push things forward in prayer. And uh, on Friday night when I was in here, wandering about on my own um, at about, I don't know what time it was before uh, Daniel then showed up and we wandered about together in our socks. And I felt rage <laughs> and I want to you know just I felt it so much that I felt I want to share on this on Sunday morning even though something else was was already sort of in my mind before that that can wait but I felt rage and I want to bring a message just entitled the rage of the righteous the rage of the righteous and they say there's one point and the point is this you need to get more angry <laughs> you need to get more angry I need to get more angry we need to be driven and fueled by rage. But that rage has got to be focused in the right direction. Unless I be misunderstood at any stage, the rage only focuses in one direction, and that's at the devil. Never at a human being. Never at anyone made in the image of God. Never, ever. All our rage and all our righteous anger is focused on the enemy. And never, even if there's somebody that the enemy appears to be working through, that human being is not your enemy. They are made in the image of God. So I want to talk about righteous rage. So I got angry on Friday night. Now, when I get angry, it's not that threatening a thing, to be honest, like um, for most people. I remember watching The Incredible Hulk when I was a kid, like the original Incredible Hulk with Lou Ferrigno in it. And uh, I still remember this quote where... Dr. Bruce Banner said to this guy one day, don't make me angry, Mr. McGee. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. (laughs) Well, when I get angry, it's not that threatening to most people. But the devil gets scared. When the devil sees a child of God getting filled with righteous rage, he gets scared. Because he knows that we're going to lay hold on God. He knows that our prayers are going to be more intense. He knows that we're going to be more resolute. He knows that we're not going to quit. He knows that we're, we're going to saturate our scripture with prayers and the word, our, our, our prayers with scripture and the word of God. And he's going to be on the receiving end of righteous rage. But the church has got to get more angry. And I want to just look at a couple of examples in the scripture of people getting angry. I'll give you the overview straight off, right from the bat or from the top. It's going, to be, uh, it's going to be David first, and then we're going to two incidents in the life of Jesus where we see righteous rage <laughs> properly directed. So in 1 Samuel 17 is the possibly the most famous story of them all, and I'm not going through the whole thing. I just want to pick out what I need and a couple more things for this morning. So in verse 26, background is... The, the army of Israel are encamped on one hill and in between them is the valley of Elah and on the other hill is the army of the Philistines. 
Philistines have a big lad called Goliath. And every day Goliath goes out and slabbers at the children of Israel and taunts them and threatens them and puts fear into them. So for 40 days, God's people are just sitting there doing nothing, listening to the taunts and the, the, the slabbering of the enemy. Goliath, of course, is a picture of Satan taunting the, the people of God, taunting humanity in general. Okay? He hates everyone. He particularly hates us who follow Jesus and are disciples of Jesus Christ. But he hates every human being on the planet because everyone is made in the image of God. And every time Satan looks at a human being, he sees the image of God and he hates that, no matter who it is. And David is a shepherd boy. He's not part of the army. He's not part of the battle, but he gets sent to the battle one day with some cheese and other good things as well to bring to his brothers to bless them and give them a bit more strength for the fight. And then he gets into conversation when he sees Goliath coming out. And in verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And there you have got righteous indignation, rage, anger, that the enemy would even dare to defy the living God and the people of God. And David is fueled by this. In the previous verse, Saul has said, uh, or he's declared, who or, or what will be the reward of the man who kills Goliath? And it's a good reward. He's going to get marrying the king's daughter, which means he'll have royal privilege. And he's not going to have to pay tax. Hallelujah. Glory to God. <laughs> In verse 25. So he gets, he gets to be part of the royal family. And he gets to avoid having to pay tax legally for the rest of his life. But that doesn't motivate David. He hasn't laid his eyes on Saul's daughter and decided that he wants her. And he's not, he doesn't care about not paying tax. He cares about God. And the people of God. In Psalm 69, and it would be worth keeping, keeping a finger in 1 Samuel 17 and then turning right a bit to Psalm 69 for a verse that will pop up again later on this morning. Psalm 69, <clears throat> verse 9 says, Zeal for your house consumes me. Look at that later a bit more. And the insults of those who insult you fall on me. So David is, is writing, he's speaking to God. Zeal for your house consumes me and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. In other words, he says, when people defy God, I feel angry about it. When people defy the people of God, I feel angry about it. I get, get, get worked up by this zeal for God and for his kingdom and for his glory. And when I see Goliath or whoever it is come out and slabber at the people of God and defy the living God, I feel this righteous rage and indignation rising up within me. He's only concerned for the honor of God. He's not looking a wife or a bit of money. And I wonder, you know, whenever we see... People who are far from God, do we feel that zeal and that passion? 
you're about the town, you tend to see the same people over and over again, walking up the street or in the shop or whatever. And people who, who are far from God and their lifestyle is, is far from God. How do you feel when you see those people? Do you feel a sense of condemnation towards them because of their lifestyle? Or do you feel a sense of holy anger against the devil who is holding them back from fullness of life that they were created to enjoy? Is it a sense of looking down your nose and look at you and look at the mess you've made of your life? Or is it a sense of, I hate you devil, because there is somebody made in the image of God and they're not fully alive. They're being held back from the goodness and the blessing of God. Do we have this holy zeal and anger and indignation within us? David was just raging about what was going on. And he's looking around, I can imagine him saying, is that the army? <laughs> is that the people of God over, you know, all sitting over there doing nothing? Just watching the grass grow for 40 days and, and not actually doing anything about this giant. How long have you been here? 40 days? Really? 40 days? And you've listened to that every single day and none of you have got angry about it? And none of you have got up and done anything about it? You just listen to it every day and you tolerate it? And don't we tend to do that sometimes? We, we tend to just say, oh, well, that's just the way it is. This town is, well, that's just the way this town is. That's the history of this town. That's what goes on in this town. And we just tolerate it and we sit on the other side of the valley and do nothing. Where David comes along and he gets angry about it. He says, this is not God's way for humanity to live. While others sit and put up with it, he gets indignant. And the only thing that David sees, the, the, the army of Israel, the people of God, their reality is centering around Goliath. Every day when Goliath walks out, that's becoming their reality. That's becoming their point of reference against which everything else is measured. This daily routine of Goliath coming out. But for David, his center of reality was the living God. The living God. He is the only one that day who truly saw reality in that valley. He saw things from God's perspective. Whenever God sent Samuel to anoint David, God says, you're looking on the outward appearance. You're looking for the wrong thing and you're looking for the wrong guy. I see the heart. And David, like God, is seeing reality. He's not just looking at what's on the outside. He's not just looking at the threats and the power of the enemy. He actually sees the reality of what's going on. And his older brother is there, Eliab. And Eliab just doesn't take David seriously. What are you doing here? You're just a shepherd. You're just a kid. Would you ever go home? You're out of place. You weren't made for battle. You weren't called for battle. Go back home and play with the sheep and leave us alone. Leave the men to do the fighting. But David won't be put off. Whenever Saul encounters David in this story, Saul tries to, to, to say to him again, I, I, I believe Saul would just say, you can't do this, you're just a child, you're not a warrior. And David again rejects what Saul would say to him to put him off. You understand, David has to, has to, to really be determined to have the chance to stand in front of this giant. He's got to get past his brother saying, that you're just a kid, you're just a shepherd, go home. He has to get past Saul saying to him, you're just a kid, go home and leave this to the men. And when David won't back down, then Saul tries to put his armor on. But David says, no, he says, I won't fight the way you fight. I'll go with a, with a, with a staff, shepherd's staff, and a sling, and a few stones. 
Saul went to battle with armor, but David went to battle in the name of the living God. Linda talked last week about creation. I've often thought about those five stones that David lifted out of the, out of the river. Just years, hundreds of years, thousands of years of water flowing over those stones. Smoothing them down, getting them ready for David's sling. And just imagine God knew the very stones. <laughs> he knew the very stones, you know, way back, I believe, at the beginning of time. God knew the very five stones that David would lift out. And for years they sat there with the water flowing over them, smoothing them down until the day that David would lift them. And then in the battle itself, you know that Goliath then taunts David. He says to him in verse 43, Am I a dog that you come at me with a stick? Well, yes, that's all you are as far as David's concerned. David had killed the lion and he killed the bear and he would kill this Philistine. And yes, in David's eyes, he was a dog. That's all he was, was a dog because of the way he had defied God. And I want you to note in verse 48, that as, as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward him, toward the battle line to meet him. Verse 48, David is running. In verse 51, after he's hit Goliath with a stone and Goliath's down, look at verse 51, David ran again. You see David running. Complete contrast with the rest of the people of God who are just sitting about on the bank making daisy chains. David is running straight to the enemy. There's an urgency about him. He's not just saying, oh, it's just the way it is. You know, it's 2019 and this is life and this is culture and we'll just, we'll just have to get on with it. No, he is running straight to the enemy to take him out. There's an urgency in David. Is there an urgency in your heart? Are you running to tackle the enemy? Are you running are you sitting? What, like, just do a wee honest evaluation. You don't have to respond. But in your heart you know. Are you right now in your life, in your prayer life, in your just in general, are you a person who is sitting or are you running? One or the other. Are you running straight into whatever is the, the thing that causes that righteous rage to well up inside you? Are you running towards it, taking it on? Or are you sitting and watching from a distance? David really had two things with him that day in the battle. Physically speaking, he had the shepherd's staff and he had the sling. And the shepherd's staff was an indication that he was a leader of the flock of God. He cared about the people of God. And everyone who cares about the people of God has got a shepherd's staff. In one hand, he had this care and this passion for the people of God and for God himself. In the other hand, he had a sling, he had a weapon to attack the enemy. He had passion and zeal for God. And he had utter hatred for the enemy to go and attack him. Don't just go into the battle with hatred for the enemy. You need to have the fire and the zeal of God as well. David went into the battle with those two things. Passion for God, the living God, and righteous anger. And he won a victory that no one else in Israel could win. The point that I want you to take out of that. It's a long, long chapter. Intentionally didn't go through it all. It's a wonderful story. But the point is in verse 26, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? That sense of anger. Who is it that would dare to come against the people of God? That's the sort of 
you know, just that's what needs to rise within us as we pray, as we pray for, for our church, as we pray for this town. And remember all of that. It's always, it's focused against the enemy. It is not focused against people. But who is this enemy who would dare to try to wreck lives in our community? Who would dare to attack a church? Who would dare to discourage people? Who is he? What right does he think he has? I'm not going to stand for it. I'm not going to stand for it. Get that fight and that urgency within you. The second example, so that's David. The second example is Jesus in John 2. John chapter 2. Again, I won't go through the whole ins and outs of it. We just want to pick out a couple of things. This is Jesus in in the temple. And he's not happy. A little bit of background. In the temple at this time, whenever the pilgrims, whenever people traveled to the temple to make sacrifices or to attend a feast, such as the Passover, they had to bring a sacrifice and they had to bring money. The sacrifice had to be purchased on site because most people were not going to travel bringing their sacrifice with them because that just made the whole journey an awful lot harder. So you really needed somewhere where you could get a sacrifice near the temple. And there was only one type of coin that was accepted. You'd be interested in this. There's only one type of coin and it was Tyrian silver because of its purity. No other coin was acceptable to put into the, into the temple treasury. So, of course, you had these guys taking advantage of that and just right around the temple, as you would expect. There's guys selling sacrifices and there's guys offering to change your money. The money changers. But they charged lots of commission. It's estimated that for each coin that was changed, they charged the equivalent of what would be about 20 quid today. So you went with one coin. You swapped it for another one of equal value. And you had to pay 20 quid for the privilege. So these guys were making a lot of money at Passover time and Jesus didn't like it. The scene around the temple was a bit like a barnyard. Instead of being a house of prayer, instead of hearing the murmur of people praying and crying unto God, you were hearing cows and sheep and money chinking about. Instead of the smell of of incense filling the air as people burned incense and prayed unto God, it was the smell of dung from all the animals that were lined up to be sold. And Jesus launches a blistering attack on the whole thing. He really does. On his own, single-handed, he takes the whole thing on. And in doing so, he says, he declares for the first time in John's gospel that he is the son of God because he talks about my father's house in verse 16, my father's house. And in other gospel accounts, he talks about it being a house of prayer and not a den of thieves. It took 80 years for this temple to be built and what Jesus did was outrageous to go in and make a whole scene like this. Furniture overturned, animals running, coins flying across the floor and money grubbers running after them trying to, trying to gather them up. But do you see the indignation in him? The anger, the rage. Don't water it down. Jesus was raging. He was raging. And he didn't just stand at a distance and say, isn't it a shame how things are going these days? Isn't it terrible that this happens in the temple, these money grubbers and all this? No, his rage drives him to take action. He does 
something about it. Now, I don't think you should make a whip. And I don't think you should go into, into places and start driving out people that are there. In our context, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is against powers and principalities and it is a spiritual battle and it is fought primarily in prayer. But you go to prayer with a whip and you go to prayer and you turn over tables and you drive things out in prayer with indignation about what is going on. That sense of rage. And Jesus says, as he, as he speaks to them in um, verse 16, these were four words that, that just really got into me a few years ago. He says, take these things away. Oh, come on. What is it that it, you just feel the righteous rage of God and you're just like, take that away. Get that out of here. Get that out of here. What is it that Jesus, if, if we were really honest and we just uh, invited him to, to shine the light into our own hearts before we look beyond our own hearts, what is it that, that, you, that you think he might just put his finger on and say that? Take that away. That doesn't belong there. That doesn't belong there. Take that away. This is a house. This is a temple, a place of prayer and communion with God. Take these things away. What is it in society that he would look at and say, I'm not tolerating that. I'm not sitting on the opposite hill with my daisy chains. I'm going to get right in there and I'm going to say, take that away. That's not right. That's not right. I remember years ago, and some of you have told this to you before, or maybe told all of you before, I don't know, but I was in Hunters one morning. Bless it. Hunters of Market Hill. Um, and Hunters don't sell lad mags they don't sell dodgy magazines but on that particular morning there's these gossip magazines you know gossip magazines you wouldn't read them you couldn't read them because there's no words in them there's only pictures pictures of celebrities walking their was that i have a subscription um there's all these you know just just Pages and pages of photographs of some celebrity walking their dog or some random thing like that. And people lap this up. But one of these particular magazines that morning, the picture on the cover of it, the woman was naked. Now, she had her hands strategically placed, but she was naked. And I just thought, no. I am here on a Saturday morning with my family, getting my groceries. My daughters are with me. I think my son was with me as well, but was much smaller, probably riding in the trolley. And I just thought, no, I am not having this. I'm not having my children saying this and thinking that's okay. It's not okay. I just felt that rage well up within me. And I went and I said to the first sort of employee I could find, you know, in gentleness, I said, you know, I wouldn't mind speaking to a supervisor or a manager. Could you get one for me? And away I went and the manager came and I says, I want that taken off that shelf. He says, I'm here with my daughters and they shouldn't have to see that and I shouldn't have to see it. My wife shouldn't have to see it and nobody should have to see it. That should not be on the shelf in your supermarket. And she looked at me and said, you're right. And she lifted the whole lot of them and away she went. Do you ever feel that rage? There was one night I came into town here. This is oh, maybe 10 years ago. I came in with Stanley. Do you know Stanley? Stanley the knife. Stanley knife, okay? <laughs> in our house it's just known as Stanley. If I say I need Stanley, that means I need a Stanley knife. 
I came in one night under the cover of darkness with Stanley. And I went round the town and I cut down a bunch of signs that were advertising an event that was to do with the occult. That people would say, ah, oh, it's, it's just an evening's entertainment. But I would say, no, it's opening the door for the occult. And me and Stanley went up and down the street about midnight on a Friday night and cut the signs down and brought them home and burnt them. <laughs> just indignation. Just maybe one or two less people might have gone to that event because me and Stanley got annoyed about it. Do you ever feel that righteous rage? That anger? And you know there are things going on this week at Stormont. And if you have time to get down and be part of it or to pray and be part of it, do it before we get outrageous laws imposed on us. Take these things away. Get angry. Don't just sit and say it'll be okay. And then the the disciples remember in verse 17, His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. What are you consumed by? What are you consumed by? Zeal for your house will consume me. What does zeal mean? This is the same zeal that David wrote about, that David showed when he went and attacked Goliath. Zeal means, if you look up in the dictionary, you'll see words like fervor, fire, fierce indignation. A zealot is someone who will die for their cause. They are so passionate about their cause. So much zeal that they will die for it. (coughs) Who are you zealous about? What are you zealous about? What consumes you? Hmm? What is it that just raises emotions and feelings in you more than anything else? Disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. You know, at this stage, the house is the temple. But after the cross, there ain't no physical temple anymore. The temple is the people of God. The house is the people of God. These walls and ceiling and roof, not a temple, not the house of God. Just a convenient physical location for the temple to meet. The people of God are the house of God. Wherever the people of God are, God dwells. So I believe when when we talk about zeal for your house, that's zeal for the people of God. Zeal for the church. Not the church as an institution, but the people of God. Would you take a bullet for each other? Would you? Hmm? Would you stand up for one another when somebody attacks A weak person is getting attacked. Would you then stand up on their behalf? Whether that's with another human being, standing up to somebody else who's criticizing them, or standing up to the devil who you know is attacking them. Does zeal for your house consume you that you'll get into the line of fire in between your brother or sister and whatever's attacking them and say, no, no. Because that person is part of the house of God. That person is part of the family of faith. That person may have issues. That person may have things they're struggling with. And those issues may need to be tackled and dealt with. But do not criticize or slabber about a child of God. About someone who's made in the image of God. And is part of the family of God and the body of Christ. Because zeal for the house consumes me. And it should consume all of us. It's one thing saying there's an issue there that needs to be dealt with. It's another thing saying that person is a so-and-so. That's not acceptable. It's not acceptable. 
zeal for the house, defending and standing for the people of God. Who is it that's discouraged at the minute? As you're part of a Christian community and you walk with God, God shows you. You know who it is that's a target. You know who are the people that the devil's just really hammering. Do you then get in and stand in the gap on their behalf? Not just encouraging them. Yes, get together with them, surely. Encourage them. Grab coffee, chat with them. But do you actually run to the enemy on their behalf and say, no, you're not touching him. You're not touching her. You're not touching that house. In the name of Jesus, you're not. Do you get that indignation within you? How dare you try to attack this community of faith? Mm-hmm. How dare you try to pick off someone who's weak and who's struggling? How dare you? How dare you, devil? Hey, eh? get a bit of fight back into you. So that's Jesus in the temple. The last example is Jesus again, and it's John again, and it's chapter eleven, and it's just brilliant. Somebody needs to paint this. Maybe somebody has already painted it. <clears throat> it's Lazarus. There is one meme on the internet of, of Jesus raised, trying to raise Lazarus and Lazarus doesn't want to get up because it's Monday morning and he's, he doesn't want to go to school. But uh, yeah, I'd love, I, have the, I can picture this all, but I can't paint. Um, so Jesus has a friend called Lazarus, brother of Mary and Martha. Lazarus has got sick and he dies. And he's dead four days. And Jesus intentionally doesn't go to him for four days. It's really, again, I don't want to take time to go into it. It's a story maybe for another morning. But he he doesn't go for four days. And when he gets there, there are some strong emotions that rise up within him. And they are woefully translated in your English Bibles. Absolutely woeful. In verse 33... Jesus sees people weeping at the tomb. Particularly Mary's weeping. And it says in verse 33, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled at the end of the verse. I don't know how you picture that. Deeply moved in spirit and troubled. But it is a woeful translation of what the Greek actually says. The word that is used in the Greek language is used for a war horse rearing up its hooves and snorting as it gets ready to go into battle. That's the word. Jesus was, and I need to get onto a translation committee on this one, like, Jesus was utterly furious. Utterly, utterly furious. Shaking with rage. At the end of verse 33. Outrage. And he's outraged, I think, for several reasons. One reason, and you see in verse 35 where he weeps himself. (coughs) I think his weeping is not for Lazarus because he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew before he left what he was going to do. He told the disciples, he says, I'm going to wake him up. So he's not crying for Lazarus. But I believe this is a beautiful scene where God made flesh is standing among a group of people who are weeping because of the grief that has been caused by death. And his heart has moved and he weeps when he sees how they have been grieved by death. He weeps with them. 
God doesn't stand a million miles away and ignore our feelings and our pain and what we're going through. He is right there with them, weeping with them. It grieves him when we weep. When pain and grief is afflicted on us and we weep, it grieves God. And then in verse 38, he heads for the tomb. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. Once more deeply moved. I can see it. I don't know if you can see it, but I can see it. I can see it. It's like something from a John Wayne movie or a Clint Eastwood movie, but I can see it. I can see the tomb. I can see the people weeping. I can see Jesus. Tears down his face. And he's furious. And he stirs. It's like the great showdown at the end of a movie where you're, you're a hero figure and you're, your enemy or whatever come together. And Jesus stirs at the tomb. Tears on his face. And he's furious. Because he did not create death. He did not create death. He is the author of life and the giver of life. And when he sees this tomb, which is effectively a temple to death, and when he sees the image of God in the tomb, dead, cold and lifeless and beginning to stink, he's raging. How dare you do this to my creation? How dare you invade and take life away from people and cause this grief and this weeping? How dare you? He is raging. You've never been angry like this. Never. But you need to ask God, give me this level of righteous anger against what the enemy tries to do in people's lives. He's furious. You can see the wind blowing and the dust blowing and tumbleweed rolling around in the background and just everybody watching and waiting. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? And he stares his enemy in the eye and he says, take the stone away. And then he says, Lazarus, come out. Come out. It's a command. Lazarus, come out. And I see Jesus standing at tombs still. Because I believe everyone who's not walking with him effectively, the image of God, is dead and in a tomb because of maybe alcohol, because of drugs, because of addictions, because of of relationship difficulties, because of lots and lots of different things, because of abuse, because of being mistreated by others. Stacks of different things that have people made in the image of God dead in a tomb. And Jesus stands at at the stone and says, come out, come out. He's indignant and the church on his behalf needs to get more indignant about the things that keep people enslaved. I remember sitting at my granny's bedside again. I've told you before when she was dying. She was 97. She was just wasting away and we were taking turns to sit with her and count down the hours. And I got so angry. I remember one day sitting and I was singing and just, just she, she wasn't able to speak but now and again she opened her eyes and I would read the scriptures to her and I would sing to her. She was in a side ward. I wasn't singing to everybody. <laughs> and I was just, just trying to keep her so much in the presence of God. And one day in particular I got so angry and I thought to myself, why am I so angry? And I realized after I thought about it later that day, I was angry at death. 
I was angry at what sin, the presence of sin in God's perfect creation does eventually to every human being made in the image of God. I was furious and I couldn't understand it. What do you need to get angry about? Hmm? What do you need to get angry about? Are you too polite with the devil? Eh? You know, if you wouldn't mind going away, if you would just leave me alone for an hour, please, and things to do. Are we too polite? Do we need to get much more agitated? Like David when he saw Goliath, that Jesus when he went into the temple, like Jesus again when he stood at Lazarus' tomb. Do we need to get a bit of righteous anger into us that changes how we pray? Times I have come in here angry, <coughs> not with people, <laughs> angry with the devil. And I've had powerful times of prayer, powerful times of prayer. Felt that indignation of God against things that are going on. I remember one time in here, we were laughing about it earlier, worshipping in here in June, one Sunday night. <coughs> Boy, I was agitated and worked up. And there's a song, uh, Raise a Hallelujah, and there's a line in it that says, Fear, you lost your hold on me. But in the wee pause between the line before and that line, I just roared at the floor. <laughs> there's nothing theological about the floor. The devil's not under the carpet. But I just roared, listen to this. <laughs> fear, you lost your hold on me. Not going to be dominated by fear anymore. I'm not going to let the enemy take away my confidence in the call of God. That rage, we need to allow it. It's not wrong. Never directed at people. I'm saying this over and over again so it can't be misunderstood. Never directed at people. Ever. There was one night I came in and I prayed all night long. I was off work the next day and I came in at about 11 o'clock and I stayed to about 5 a.m. and I just cried out to God all night long in, in indignation and he moved and he answered prayer. But I had to get to that level of brokenness and fury at what the enemy was trying to do. That's where the battle is fought and won in prayer. Whether that's Tuesday night or whether it's 24 hours of prayer or whether 21 days of prayer and optional fasting or whether it's an all-nighter. Whenever we do that, church, and all of you have been around for a while, know whenever we do that, there's a shift. There's a change. There's more momentum. There's more energy. There's more hunger. There's more passion. There's a shift. And we need to do that more often. Can I just say, if you can't make it to prayer on Tuesday night, you know where the keys are. Start another prayer meeting. I don't think the leadership of the church will disagree with that. Start another one. If it's too far to drive over here, start one in your home. Pray, 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 pray. And let your praying be motivated by the anger of what the devil would try to do to a church to try and divide it and split it and pick off the weak and the wounded. You know wounded sheep, do you know what they do? A, a sheep that's sick just instinctively goes, goes away from the rest of the flock. That's what it does. If you see a sheep on its own, if you see sheep in a field and there's one that's on its own a long way from the others, it's sick. And the wolf comes and picks off the sick and the weak. And we need to not only go after the sick and the weak and love them and encourage them, but we need to stand in the gap and stand in front of them and say, Devil, no. No. <laughs> We're too polite in our praying. There's too much asking and there's not enough proclaiming. 
heard this a lot at a conference a few weeks ago, the need to proclaim in prayer, to stop the asking and start proclaiming. You don't need to ask God's will. You need to declare God's will. When it's clear and it's in the word of God, you need to declare it in prayer, not ask politely. In the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, and we'll maybe get into this in a few weeks because I've got other stuff buzzing around my head, but it's not, you know, God, would you mind letting your kingdom come? If you're not too busy. And it's, it's not even let your kingdom come. It's actually a command. Kingdom come. <laughs> you're, commanding, you're, you're commanding God. Don't misunderstand me in that. But you're, because that is God's will. And because of the authority that you have as a child of God. You're proclaiming the will of God. And you're saying kingdom come. And that's the way we have to pray. And you come in, because it's hard sometimes to pray that way at home because people get scared and the dog starts barking. You sometimes need to come in here on your own where no one can hear you and just start proclaiming. Start proclaiming and just start naming people that you know are under the tack and just declare, no, in the name of Jesus, the devil's not getting them. He's not getting them. You need to, those of you that are parents, you need to stand at your home. Every morning I stand in my home and I declare that the hedge around the property becomes a wall of fire. <laughs> I said, Lord, you are the wall of fire around us and you are the glory within us and the devil's not getting in. He's not getting in. Not on my watch. He's not getting access. But we don't pray like that enough. We've got to get that fight and that passion within us. A bit more declaring, a bit more, no, that's enough. No more. You're not coming in. Remember, as we learned in Ephesians, when Paul talks about the heavenly realms, that is a place where we do battle in prayer, in the heavenlies. And the powers and the principalities and the spiritual forces can hear us. And that's why I come in here and others come in here and we stand and we declare, no, you're not getting in. You're not taking that child. You're not taking that person. You're not coming in in the name of Jesus. Now, of course, our focus is always on the king. We don't get carried away in talking to the devil but there's got to be a fight in prayer where we declare to the enemy where the line is. Don't ask it, declare it. Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Keep reminding the enemy of that. Keep reminding, keep reminding him that Jesus is alive and he is risen from the dead and he is enthroned and every spirit and unclean thing must acknowledge that. He is king and he has all authority and we are seated with him in heavenly places. And we need to get angry and we need to take our authority in the name of Jesus. All right. Amen. Bless the Lord.